Hi, this is Jason Blaze, and you're listening to The Sassholes with James, Pete, and KG. Welcome to Sassholes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. We are revenue ops with a... Edge! Edge! Jamie, Jason, KG, and myself, Pete, have a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Today, our guest is Jason Blaze, is the Chief Commercial Officer at PerkSpot and has over 17 years of sales and sales leadership experience of both inside and outside sales teams, primarily in HR, tech, and recruitment advertising. Thanks to his time at ZipRecruiter and CareerArc, Blaze has a wealth of knowledge working with HR-minded buyers and is currently applying his experience to PerkSpot's commercial team as they develop new approaches and processes across marketing, sales, client success, and revenue ops to accelerate their market growth. But before we get to Jason, this episode is brought to you by NeuroNoodle. Hey, parents of athletes, get a doodle their noodle. It's playoff time and football and basketball starting to kip, kick up. They get knocked in the head. You need a baseline to compare it to to figure out if they can get back on the court. You get a physical every year, right? We'll get a brain checkup now while the before the basketball season starts. Basketball started, hasn't it, guys? It has. Last night, I got to give a shout out to my Marquette. Uh, I'm a Marquette alumni. They up, uh, upset Illinois. Uh, Shaka error has started. Havoc is here. Schedule an appointment now at neuronoodle.com. Okay. KG. Yeah, man. Carney. Oh, no. <laughs> Come on. Here it comes. Carney. Yeah, it's big. I only seem to get sick on weekdays. I must have a weakened immune system. Leave us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net. Hey, Pete, I got one for you. I got one what? I meant to put on there. Why um, you do this? What? You did Because it's, it's great. I'm, I'm just going to edit this all out, but go ahead. What did Delaware? What? Maybe New Jersey. I don't know, but Alaska. <laughs> We may keep that. We may keep that. We might keep that. It's all about quant. It's just like dials. It's all about quantity. Got any shout outs, KG? I just have three. I uh, just wanted to wish a uh, happy birthday to the chief marketing officer of ZipRecruiter, Cosm Safey, uh, and a happy birthday to Gary Carlson. Jason, you remember Gary Carlson? He used to paint his fingernails. Remember that guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he worked for you, thank God. And then uh, I, I have. Um, what do you mean he? You can't just leave that. He painted his fingernail. What do you mean he painted his? Fingernail? He, he like, would literally I, paint his fingernails I would, black. I would leave his, that. He was this huge muscle head, dude, like big guy, and he would paint his fingernails black, and he was, and his toenails too. And you and, know and what? I, you always got to be so drunk. Yeah. Happy birthday, Carney. Oh, thank you. Yeah. This weekend was my 37th birthday. Well, it's good to celebrate it 12 or 13 times. Uh, Greg Brass, four years at the Home Depot. Remember Greg? Eric Waldinger, starting a new position, Chief Revenue Officer at Snapsheet. Yeah, crazy. Hey, check this out. Remember Zach Seelan? Yeah, he's um, he called me the other day. Working on the Did turnaround it, for plumbing. What what do you, what do he call you? He's starting a new position as an organizational strategy and operations at Jay Blanton Plumbing. Yeah. 
I bet his part of his salary is making up that title. It's pretty pretty nice. Is that is that all we got? All right, KG. How do you know Jason? How do you how how do you guys uh, hook up? Well, Seems Jason like, oh, and I, oh. Jason and I started at ZipRecruiter on the exact same month, and Jason was running a, a pilot program. Uh, from the East Coast, and I was uh, building a brand new inside sales team at ZipRecruiter in 2013, and we worked closely together on on some of the administrative things uh, between those two teams. And um, after after a while, Jason got promoted to uh, lead our uh, middle market or major uh, department, uh, major accounts department, which early on in ZipRecruiter days didn't work so well because so SMB focused ZipRecruiter is. Um, but I saw really great talent in Jason. And I said, you know, listen, man, will you please, uh, you know, come lead an inside sales team for us? And I'm just telling you, Jason, as I've told you before, uh, I'm so impressed because you took a job First of all, you shouldn't even moved out to Santa Monica. I told you not to move out to Santa Monica, but you did it anyway. You took a risk. You burnt the ships, and uh, and you accelerated as an inside sales leader. Like I've never seen anybody jump all over it. You're innovative. You're you're a tester. You're data and metrics oriented. And very shortly after, he was a manager. Then he was the director, and then uh, and then Jason was the the VP of inside sales for a long time. At, uh, at ZipRecruiter before we couldn't hold him on any longer and he went on to bigger and badder things. So he's just super impressed with uh, with Jason, known him since 2013 through the ZipRecruiter days. Is that, is that about right? I even I even mixed in the don't move out to Santa Monica, Jason. Sounds good. That's a good recap. Why did you tell him not to move out to Santa Monica? Jason, why did I tell gonna, you? My team wasn't going to hit quota. And they were like, if your team doesn't need quota this quarter, we may or may not have your division around any longer. So we don't really want you to move out of here and not have a job. I was being nice. <laughs> I will say we hit quota. Uh, so it, it worked out. I will say it also motivated me to make sure we hit quota on that team. Uh, uh, nothing nothing inspires like living in Santa Monica as a, you know, as winning. As, in terms of like contest, I think your team is quota, you can live in Santa Monica. Pretty, it was a pretty good contest right there. So Santa Monica, does that mean they have like less pop-up tents there? Yes. Okay, just checking. <laughs> oh, yeah. So far. <laughs> We're in our own little bubble. I, it, well, Jason, let's get right into it. What are some of the there biggest mistakes? Is am I supposed to say that or you? I'd, I'd love you to take charge, man. This is like, listen, Jason's been in the recruitment advertising space for longer than me. And he's probably, you know, right around the same time as you, Pete. So he's a jobs in the U.S. guy. He's, all right. You know, oh, Jason, jobs Pete. in the U.S. guy. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. like, Pete, I put some all topics right, in all here. Right, okay. Like, I, I'm, I'm just going down the list, my friend. That's all. So Jason, man, you're, you're old school. You're one of the OG classified ad guys. When did you get into the recruiting space? Yeah, 2004. And you're exactly right. That's what it was. We were convincing people why the internet was a better place to spend their money than the newspaper. That was that was our entire sales pitch right there. Uh, unlimited characters. You didn't, you didn't have to pay for bold. Uh, yeah. Help me out. 2004. Was that... Uh, Carney, when did you come in? I came in in 99. When in did you... 2003 was right after we bought... Uh, Gannett bought out all those other 18 newspapers. Yeah, yeah. Career builder, and then they flipped the script, and instead of uh, getting rid of all the headhunter guys, they got rid of all the career builder guys and brought Bob Montgomery back. All right, he hired, and he hired me. 
Well, kind of what I'm trying to get at is back then you, you were trying to do a combo ad. You had a print ad and you had an online yeah. and you're trying to get mm-hmm. the print to the online. Flex ads. Weren't they called so flex did, ads? Well, you did a web code. What year was the web code or whatever the hell that was called? That was probably 2003, 2004. It was probably still popular. Okay. Yeah, that was... Uh, I mean, they were trying to stop the bleeding, right? So they, you know, the conglomerates got together, partnered up. So there wasn't really one master. You had three or four masters. So it, uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. We, we were also acquired as jobs in the U.S. by a, a newspaper conglomerate. It was a smaller, you know, $200 million in revenue. And they had like 26 dailies and like 50 monthlies that they put out. Uh, based in the Northeast. And I'll never forget the first day we met with their head of ad sales, um, who said, yes, revenue and ad sales have been declining for the last five years, but it doesn't have anything to do with the internet. It's actually just changing behaviors. It's, the internet has nothing to do with, uh, with our declining ad sales in the newspaper. She was very- you laugh good. right in their face? <laughs> well, you, you, it, felt sad. it was more sadness than, than I think I felt. So Night, Night Ritter was out in California, wasn't it, Carney? Night Ritter was California, Gannett was everywhere, and um, I think Jobs in the USA was bought. They, they had uh, the majority, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, right, or something Journal, like that. Journal Register, yeah, Journal Register Company, which had the Connecticut, the um, uh, whatever the Connecticut newspaper was up there, New Haven uh, yeah. Register, highest readership rate, and with all the educated New Haven, Connecticut folks. That was like crazy time because the internet, you were basically printing money against the classified ads. The only problem was if you were owned by a classified ad company, you were printing money and they were taking it all to feed their printers uh, that weren't getting used. So that is 100% you were, my experience. Yeah, they just took all the money. They they robbed the kit of the cupboards all the time. And therefore, you wouldn't yeah. have all this free money flying around. If you were a monster, you had all the free money in the world, right? But so so Jason, it, it was going to be snagged. So, so you were the, the online piece. Did you have to do a four-legged sales call with the print person going out on calls? Or how did, how did that go yeah, down? so when we first got acquired, that was 2005, 2005 2006. Uh, so first I had, to, I had to go out to every single newspaper that they owned and train them on selling digital, cross-selling digital. So I went all up and down kind of the East Coast and, and Central uh, U.S. And it was fantastic because almost every single time I had those visits, they would look at me and say, why would I sell your digital? Because then I won't have a job. I'd go, hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so that, that helps with my, helps with my share. Oh, hey, look, look at that cool <laughs> car over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we ended up going out and, and doing those, those combo meetings. Uh, it was, it was a mess. Um, it was well, very interesting to see that old school newspaper world. Uh, I'll never forget going on visiting. Like every every manager had a secretary up front. Like literally, there was like offices and then secretaries up front uh, in front of their offices. Um, very very different world. So, how, did you deal you know, with a lot of the USA is still around? Aren't they more focused? Like, I know the guy running it, Saeed Eastman. He worked at our former company. You remember Saeed? I don't know if you do, yeah, Pete. He was there for a hot minute. But I was friends with them. But aren't they now focused more on like classified ads for uh, yeah. uh, unemployment agents? Yeah, I think what they're doing now is more uh, you know affiliate type of advertising for jobs primarily. They 
you know, buy one, buy one city and get it spread all over the country. Uh, I don't know if they even have their own sales force necessarily anymore, um, or if they're just aggregating job content. Um, yeah, I think they're aggregating, and I think they've got relationships with like um, employment agencies, like uh, yeah, unemployment firm. K- kind of where I was going with it is, you had to go out there, and you had, uh, did you deal with a lot of unions? Not so much. Yeah, we didn't have a, a ton. Obviously, we. we stayed away from them <laughs> yeah right right because uh, you had to go out there and you had you know to get their mind share to you know get adoption of it uh did you have to buy any of that you know do contest prices how do you motivate the people that don't want to be motivated because they only got motivated on friday at ad deadline right mm-hmm. Absolutely. And most of that ad deadline was just the same people who've been buying from them every single Friday for the last 17 years. Uh, it wasn't actually landing any new business. It was waiting for their, waiting for their buddy at the car dealership or the you know, local hospital to give them a call back and say, yep, run that ad. Here's what it has to say. And run down and create the, the prints, to, you know, create the plates so they can put it on the end of the newspaper that weekend. Um, you know, we... We worked really hard to try to get them to see like this is how we're going to increase profitability for them in the newspaper. And so, you know, it, it was a fine line because you don't want to say, so your business is dying and, you know, we're here to help you not die so fast. Uh, that's not a good message. Um, so it was really around like, hey, this is going to help you sell more, increase your your um, your profitability as a client, which is going to help you uh, as an employee. And there was definitely a ton of contests. Uh, you know, I can't remember what they were, but there's constant contests at every single one of those newspapers uh, to get, you know, who's going to close the most deals. I will tell you, though, my recollection at that time was like participation rates in the contest were like, you know, five, no one cared, 5%. They didn't care. They literally just didn't care. Um, yeah. You couldn't incentivize them enough to actually want to work harder. <laughs> and, do do and, you uh, think that, uh, generally speaking, Jason, what's your stance on contests? So back then there was this sort of, you know, you know, blase approach to, you know, participating in concert uh, contests. No one really cared. What's your general sense on contests nowadays? Oh, my managers hate me uh, when it comes to contests. Um, you know, my my feeling is. If we're going to do a contest, we need to define what it is we're going to move and learn, uh, and then be able to track the results back to the actual contest. Uh, so, you know, just doing contests where the top salesperson, who's always the top salesperson, continues to be the top salesperson that makes an extra 250 bucks, does nothing uh, for the overall growth of the team. Uh, and is there contests where, like, you know, somebody gets one inbound call that is a big deal and they win the contest? We didn't learn anything. We didn't improve anything can't see any measurable difference it was a waste of time and money we would have gotten that deal anyway we wouldn't have had to run a contest so you know, my view is like contests are great and as long as you treat them like experiments like tests okay we want to test this model and if, if this works what we what we'll learn is x and from that learning we can then change our our process to lead in because we now know that this behavior is possible or this outcome is possible uh, but if you can't measure the results against the behaviors what are you doing other than, again, we all see it. The best people just get a few extra bucks because they're always the best people. So well, tell me that, about a contest that you think actually works. Because what you're telling me is that your managers hate you. And they hate yeah. you what? Because you really grind them on like the learnings and it can't just be like, hey, can we spend 250 bucks? To da, 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 da. Like, right. So why, why do your managers hate you? And, and honestly, tell me about a time when the contest yeah. actually really worked the way you just described it. 
I don't know if I can uh, tell you about them, but we held that was our standard. And so, you know, we had many, you know, you know, um, uh, Sweet 16, uh, you know, uh, college hoops contests of generating the right behaviors and over the multiple weeks of March Madness contests. Um, but, I, you know, when managers come with a contest, you know, I make them really clearly define what metrics were they expecting to move? How are they going to get the entire team to move versus one person gets out ahead and nobody else actually engages with the effort? Because that's also the big problem with contests is if there's only one prize and someone gets out early, the rest of the people just stop trying. And then you don't get the lift that you're shooting for anyway. Uh, so I need to make sure the whole team actually gets lift in, in their effort or whatever behavior metric we're looking to move. And how are we going to measure the outcomes so that we can report back? Because I always said, like, yes, we're going to report back to the, to the leadership team on this contest that we did, what our hypothesis were, what, you know, was, what the expectations were, and then whether or not we move the needle. And then why or why not? Why didn't it move the needle? Generally, what I remember is just having explanations about why it didn't move the needle and why we couldn't track it because there was cross noise. There was noise of like, well, but it was also, you know, this quarter, this quarter is always the highest month. Or it was also, we actually got an increase mm -hmm. in leads because they spent more on, on advertising. So leads went up. So everyone actually got 30% more leads that, you know, month. And so we got 30% better, but we got more leads. Was it actually the contest that drove it? And That's right. Just constantly explaining that, like, they can't actually tell if this did anything or not. Tell us about Merch Madness. I remember Mer, like it was March Madness, but it was MRR, yep. Merch Madness. Yeah. That was one of the best contests I it ever was. saw you and Ryan yep. Jones put together. Ryan I Jones. loved yep. it. Tell tell our listeners about, uh, about that mm -hmm. without naming any specific names of companies, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so, you know, essentially we looked at a couple of different factors going through that. That was probably the most uh, complex and intricate uh, contest ever, but each each week of March Madness, I mean, we were going through, there was a contest for each week and, uh, or each round. It wasn't necessarily each week, it was each round, right? Going from 64 to 32 to 16 and so on. And what we identified were the different factors that that generated or contributed to Merkle, MRR or lead. And so, you know, the first round, I can't remember exactly what they were, was like, hey, can we increase the volume of transactions? Because we can close more deals at the same revenue, then we get more revenue per lead if we can increase transaction rates. And then we were like, okay, let's see if we can track a higher revenue per deal. Because if we close the same number of deals, but we can actually get a higher revenue per deal, we can increase Merkle revenue per lead. And so each round had a very specific expectation of like the different factors that were going to increase uh, revenue per lead that we could then look in that distinct period of time and say, did we actually increase dollars per deal, which then increased revenue per lead uh, as a factor if we kept our conversion rates the same. Um, and it was, it was, that was as close as we ever got to. That's the one that I thought of when you're asking me one that worked, that was as close as we ever got because it was super specific um, with very, very tight controls around what we're measuring. And, uh, and Jones, <clears throat> Ryan Jones did a fantastic job of that, of making it super clear about how we were going to measure the performance on each level uh, and then learn from it, which I thought was really valuable for us. A couple of things that I put down for the contest were, and some of you already brought it up. I mean, yeah. you're, you're blurring the lines of compensation because you want to motivate, you know, behavior. And when you take into the sales cycle, you know, you do a contest and this is from work that was already in the funnel, you know, right. for whatever the sales cycle is. So you would have had it anyways. Yeah. Uh, but if you're going to test something out for, you know, a pay plan change, you know, compensation, it's good to have a contest in it to see if it does motivate 
the behavior. The only thing that I, I saw that really helped with the contests were when we used to run those monkey commercials, I wasn't for them, but you had the Super Bowl, you had the commercials, and I'm like, all right, how can we make money out of this? Get the kids to get on the phones to say, hey, did you see the commercial last night? What'd you think to have a reason to have a conversation and get, you know, something going? Zip was pretty good with the commercials. If you get a you know, a list of when all the commercials hit, you know, to follow up Zip with the phone. Zip did great on the radio ads, especially, right? Radio, right. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but they did. They hit radio. I know they and did. They, and then, and then the the, the and they, radio. What they did, what, and, and I think it's interesting. So you've been involved in two companies. One company was well, more than two companies, but two different. One company, you were you were running shotgun. So were we when there was a cultural switch from no one really read newspapers to everyone was moving online, right? Mm-hmm. And then at ZipRecruiter is a little bit different. You were taking a bunch of the pie because of what I would say strategic, poor strategic decisions by the sort of the leaders in that industry were focused on other things while you guys were going in and basically doing what these leaders were doing, but just focused purely on what they were doing, which, hey, we can give you a candidate in 24 hours. It's, well, guess what? So could... Uh, CB, CB, or our former company did that in 2005, where you could upload a resume and we would tell you with artificial intelligence. But you guys just sold on that, and it was you were rocking the boat because the strategy was so poorly. The strategy changed. Now I wouldn't say poorly. The strategy changed at our former company so much that it opened up holes for you guys to take it. They're yeah, probably print money in those cases too. Yeah, and we took it. A complete opposite approach. So I was working for Bernard Hodes at the time, the Hodes agency at the time doing employer branding work when I joined uh, Zip at that time. Prior to that, I was with First Advantage Recruiting Solutions. I don't know if you guys remember them. Uh, they were one of the first, they were the first to roll out a digital postmaster post once and it will send it out to different uh, endpoints. Um, they built it for, I think, one of their larger clients, like, oh, just post it once. We will get it to where it needs to go for you versus yeah. having to buy ads in multiple locations. And um, we were selling that product for $50,000, $75,000 a year, plus add-ons, plus service fees. And I, I remember meeting with Zip. They're like, yeah, we do the same thing. It's $39 a month. And I was like, whoa, I'm literally selling that a year ago for $75,000. You ability to post once and go to multiple places. And you guys are bringing this down market for $39. Um, we're onto something here. But the other thing that they did, which really they look back and you think, like, how crazy was this? Those other companies you mentioned never advertised to employers. They advertised to audience. And all ZipRecruiter did was advertise to the employers. Every message was to the employer. It was only employer focused. And it was just about how am I going to help you get candidates and do it fast, cheap, quick, easy, simple. Versus everybody else was like, hey, job seekers, come over here. Hey, job seekers, come over here. So they did. They changed that paradigm. The one thing that um, our former company avoided that because it would take away from sales reps being able to sell into that space, right? So the thought process was we could do e-com to push up the sales reps, to push up the sales reps higher into the bigger accounts. But at one point or another, and that's what we used to do. And then at one point or another, we said, no, we got to make sure these sales reps can eat their, their lunch and stay in this lane. 
and therefore we're going to divest from e-com because we need this inside sales group to eat what they're eating because we don't have anywhere for them to move moving forward. And it was basically because the top dogs took over and then said, wait, I don't want to lose any of my people by putting in Joe Blow and have him go up and sell to a huge company over the phone. I'd rather wine and dine and take them golfing, right? And we became a cold golfing company rather than a cold calling company. Well, that, that's such a, that's, I think that's an interesting question, by the way. You know, Jason, you've been at product-led companies uh, as well as sales-led companies, you know, in the past. Yeah. How, do you, how do you deal with that challenge where this, that, and really what we're talking about here, Jason, channel yeah. conflict. You're calling yeah. a company and then all of a sudden they sign up through the e-commerce flow. Yeah. How, do you, how, do you, how do you balance that as a leader when you're dealing with product and marketing uh, trying to do their thing on an e-commerce yeah. side, which is incredibly profitable for the shareholders. Hopefully you have stock options, but then you're leading a sales team. And as Jamie says, they need to eat lunch. <laughs> you yeah. know, how, how do you, how do you balance that? Yeah. It's not easy. It was really hard, but I think the, the only answer is over communicating is a value, right? I mean, at our former place, we had the best culture. We had the best company outings twice a year. We had, partners, you know, bring your, your spouse to your outings. We had the best president's clubs. We had the best holiday weekends. We had the best summer holiday parties. We had the t-shirt swags and the, and the um, charitable giving team. And we had, you know, nice equipment, all the best technology, fully built out sales ops team. I don't know how many, we had a dozen people in sales ops. Um, we had BI support people. You know, I had three or four BI people that just basically supported inside sales. That's only possible because of the high profit margins that we get for the econ, and that that's how we drive this engine. And companies that don't understand that they're, we're both working together towards the success of the company, and that you know having a high profitable arm of the business that allows us to pay better, to treat our employees better, to have a better work environment. It was a constant conversation around that because the individuals are saying, "Oh, I wanted that deal. That would have been my deal. I would have gotten that." And it's like, well, because you didn't get it, we can pay you really well and uh, take you on these all these great events and, and treat you really well as an employee because we maintain these kind of high profit margins uh, that allow us to have this amazing place to work. And I joke, I can't hire anybody uh, from my past company because it's such a great place to work because they're such a profitable business that they're, they're treated so well and given all the tools and resources to do their jobs more effectively. Um, but it was it was an ongoing conversation. There's an ongoing conversation about that. And, I think where I've come to now is, you know, I, I call product, right? I call product, if I don't have a good product to sell, then it doesn't matter, right? If, you know, selling a, I've been in places where I sold an inferior product or solution. That's hard. That's super hard to do. But when you have a product that people want, uh, that people, you know, that, that drives value that people come to on their own, a lot easier to sell in that environment and feel like you can win. Um, so I think it was really just a constantly balancing. And actually, we talked a lot about, the value that we contribute as sellers. So we had to go to, you know, Kevin, you probably remember this. We need 5X. We need 5X revenue on, on, our, on our staff. So you're going to generate 5X the cost of whatever we're paying you and supporting you with. So you have to be able to generate this much money. Otherwise, why would we have you at all? We would just take the econ money. Like the econ money is just over there. Why would we build this team out if it's not going to be super profitable to the company? Because what's, how is that good for this business? How are we going to grow and, you know, someday exit or go public as, as they did? Um, but like we had to have those conversations, conversations routinely. Um, but you just reminded me of something actually, Kevin. I want to go back to the contest real quick because the one actual contest that worked, we had a, a, a young guy named Whippersnapper. Um, 
What's his name? His name. I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Andy, Andy Farrell. Andy, Andy Farrell, we called the whippersnapper because he was so yeah. young. <laughs> he was on our finance team. And we would collaborate about goals and like, hey, can we give it an outstanding um, uh, reward if we can do something that no one believes is possible? And we ended up getting a million dollars in a month when we had never done a million dollars in the quarter on the sales team. And we, I, it was a trip to Vegas. It was a show. Uh, it was dinner for the entire team. And what happened because of that? We ended up being able to double everybody's quota across the board. Because before that, the quota was impossible. You could never hit these numbers. It was way too hard. We were like, well, if I give you a ton of money, send you to Vegas, give you a trip and a show out, then can we do it? Magic happens. All of a sudden, like, oh, well, I really want to try. The team bought in. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, so this wasn't a, a real ceiling. This was a will ceiling. And now it was like, oh, wait a minute. This is possible. And that shifted our entire mentality and our quota model and made us more profitable and, and more competitive. But that was one contest that actually won because we focused on the profitability of the sales team and, and pushing that, pushing the boundaries there. Um, and so, we could, so honestly, so we could protect ourselves about, you know, from getting eaten by the e-com. <laughs> like, no, no, we're valuable. You keep us around. We can actually generate a lot more money if, uh, if we manage the team the right way. You know, Jason, you said something interesting there at the at the beginning where you said, hey, you know, at this company, we're great because we had trips and we had this and we had that and we had that and we had this. I was waiting for you to say it, but you did say it. We had the best technology and those other company best products. And yeah. I, I want to know your take, but I always tell people, if you want to learn how to sell, go sell at an inferior product company. If you want to learn how to make money, go to the best product. Right. And I think you should right. go in that order. So if you're a new yep. employee on the marketplace, don't go look to sell at learn how to sell at Google. Uh, go to Ask Jeeves if it's still around. <laughs> learn to sell at Ask Jeeves. And then six months in, call up Google and say, I'm now time to make money. Um, yeah. You're not going to learn how to sell at one of those companies. You're going to learn how to make money only. I'm biased. If I see a sales manager or seller who's only worked at like top three brand names, like, do I know if they can sell or not? I don't have any idea. I mean, I don't know how you weren't successful if you're the top brand in whatever category you're in, right? Question for you, Jason, on contests. If you had to pick one, would you take the same amount of money and incentivize the leadership instead of the reps? Could you get the same output? Uh, that's a that's a tough one. I'm a uh, born and raised in, in Maine and living in New England. I'm a big Patriots, uh, Bill Belichick leadership uh, matters guy. Um, but I think in that in those cases, it needed the team buy-in because the team had to hold each other accountable for trying because it was a team goal. Either the team got it and they all got to go, or the team didn't get it and couldn't go. And so I think it would have been much more difficult to incentivize the manager and then have them have to pull along every individual uh, on that team versus making the team buy, buy into it. Because that's, that's kind of what I saw with the contest where if you're going to incentivize the reps, you got to incentivize the, the leaders. And then sometimes we do a contest. We didn't tell the reps about anything. We just say, we just go to the leaders and say, Hey, whoever does X, you'll get this uh, uh, prize. And then sometimes then you, you kind of see the leaders that go, hey, hey, guys, I'm up for a prize. Do this for me, which is yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, kind, yeah. kind of crap. But then you just see the, you know, the the leaders that would step out, step outside the box and try to get 
you know, a goal accomplished. Because uh, sometimes they would make a brand for themselves. They would make a differentiator uh, for their team, uh, have a logo for their team. What do they stand for? And, you know, yep. having teams yep. go up against one another, that that seemed to, to, to help. Yeah. I think when I had a team uh, early on, especially in, in- – where Kevin and I were, you know, I, um, as a, as a manager, as a leader of a team, I was just hell bent on that. My team was going to be the best team. Like no matter what, my team was just going to be the best team. And that was going to be through how I held my reps accountable. Uh, the goals, the focus, the coaching, every conversation was going to be, how do we close more deals? How do we close them faster? How do we close them bigger? And yeah, I think that's the kind of leaders that you want. Um, as I, you know, moved up and had many leaders working for me, I, I don't want to have to uh, motivate the leaders. And, and Kevin, actually, I was on a, a leadership call this morning, and I, and I quoted you. Uh, you know, our job is not to motivate people. Our job is to create a motivating environment uh, and to reward them for their motivation. But it's not about motivating them. And and I feel that that's really particular with managers. If you don't want to come in and make sure your team's the best, and you just want to come in and check activities and make sure they're having fun and, you know, checking in on their, you know, how their weekend was and you're not driven to make sure your team's the best team. You know, I'm not going to give you bonuses or, or contest money to, 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 you know, make you want to do that. I love Kevin's got the meeting. The meeting. Yeah, man. <laughs> look, look, your, your, your coaching sessions were legendary. I'm envious of the coaching sessions that you, that you ran. Um, and one of the things that you used to do, which I loved, was that as the VP, you would cut past the director and and go to the manager and say, do you mind if I do the coaching session with this rep? And you would sit there and what you were doing was two things. You were teaching the manager how to run a coaching session and you were then coaching the rep at the same time. And I and I and it just blew me away. And I thought, oh, my God. But the way that you did it was was absolutely amazing. Do me a favor. <laughs> do our listeners a favor. Talk to me about how you do your coaching sessions like that. They were legendary. Yeah. You know, um, I believe it was the job of the manager of any organization, uh, no matter what sales, whatever you're doing, to improve, improve the performance and skill set of the people that work for you, every single person on that team. And I'm interviewing managers right now. I've asked a few of the question. You got 20% bottom performers, 20% top performers, 60% in the middle. Where do you spend your time? My answer is I spend the same amount of time with every rep because my job is to get every rep better. I want my better people to get engaged and strive for things they can't believe that they can do. I want to take my middle reps and have them be as good as my best reps. I want to bring my bottom reps up to being better and hitting their numbers. Like my job is to help every single person get better um, every month, 1% better every day, whatever that is. And so, you know, I always approached one-on-ones and coaching as deal coaching because I looked at it like batting practice, like uh, like, like walkthroughs before the, the Sunday game. Like, hey, this is a situation that's going to come up 100 times in your career. So when you hear this, what are you thinking about? So what, before you make this call, <clears throat> who, who are you talking to? Based on that title, how busy do you think they are? What do you think is most important to them before we get on the call? Great. And, okay, so if they ask you this question, what are you going to say about that? And it was very much like batting practice. Like, let's go pretend there's runners in scoring position and you need to hit a line drive or a ground ball to move the, the runners around. You're not swinging for the fences necessarily. So let's talk about the, the scenarios that we're going to be in. And it was always like, let me go into a deal. Where was this deal? What was happening next? Who are we engaging with? How are you going to move that deal forward? And 
because I had, you know, a ton of years in sales, right? I, they're basically the same problems that come up over and over and over. And ultimately, every single time that we would do something, you know, somebody would say, hey, that thing we talked about happened. Like, of course it does. It happens in all the calls. These calls, they're all the same calls over and over with a small variation of the things you need to be ready for. And then they would immediately get by in. Like, oh, shit, when I talk to Jason, we talk about things and then it comes up and then I'm prepared. And so that helped build that affinity for, like, people reaching out, uh, people reaching out and wanting to get coaching and wanting to get feedback. And I used to tell the managers, you know, whenever you interact with, with your team, with any rep on your team, you're either adding value or wasting time. That's it. They're working. They're at eight hours a day. They've got quotas that are hard to hit. They've got eight hours of sitting at their desk to try to hit their quota. If you're taking their time away from what they're doing, you're either wasting their time or you're adding value. So at the very least, you can connect the other weekends going and they go, so what's your next call? You can connect, ask about their, you know, they just had a kid, how it's going, great. So who'd you get off the phone with? What's the next step? And if you constantly think about my job is to add value in every interaction, I don't want to waste time. You get this organic culture of like, hey, that's the guy that when he comes by, provides me a little nugget of wisdom that I can use to help make more money. And now, hey, Jason, can you come take a look at this? Uh, and then you know you have a, a you know solid coaching culture, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, it's, it's kind of how I how I view the world. What you didn't do in those calls was spend a lot of time talking about like, tell me about your five year plan and a lot of that fluffy stuff, which is important in some of the context of those calls. Um, and yeah. so you didn't spend a lot of time doing that. Maybe you could have spent a little bit more time doing that, but, but, but you were really helping them tactically. You'd open up the pipeline and go that one. What do we do with that one? And you also weren't spending time saying, what's your number? Just tell me what your call out is. What is your forecast? Yeah. You know, you were really like, you would get in, you'd roll up your sleeves and you would show the manager how to do these coaching calls. You would go through yeah. the leads. You would, you would even go through the leads that these salespeople had discarded over the last week. And you would find so much opportunity just in the leads that they had discarded. And I, and I thought, God, that was just so impressive. But now if you were to wind the clock back, what are what are what are some of the leadership mistakes that that you can lay on our on our listeners? Like if you you know what would you do differently if you could name like three leadership mistakes that you're like, man, I don't want to do that again. What what would some of those be? Yeah, you know, specifically what we just talked about. There's one that, that jumps to mind. There's probably three or four, and I'm happy to chat about them. But one that jumped up immediately based on what we talked about was, uh, you know, the concept of training and coaching. Um, and specifically training, I think early in my career, I, um, believed if I told somebody, Hey, you're a sales rep, I need you to do prospecting. I could walk away and they knew what that meant. Or, Hey, we need to get better at overcoming objections. They knew what that meant. And I think what I, what I've had to learn was it's up to me as a leader to validate that my employees know what they're supposed to do and how to do it. Because if you just say, okay, guys, we're going to focus on, you know, we're going to do some cold calling today. Well, good, good. You walk away. You're going to find out half the people, they don't really know what they mean by cold calling. Who am I going to call? Like, who do I call next? How do I build my list? Like, what should I be saying? Do I leave a message or do I not leave a message? But I had to really learn, like, oh, no, I need to validate. So do we know what we're supposed to do? And do we know how to do it before I could actually hold them accountable for doing it? Um, so, like, training is, do you know what to do and you know how to do it? Coaching is, you know what to do, but you're not good at it yet. You're just like, you know what you're supposed to do and you're not good. Let me help you get better. But I can't coach you if you literally don't know what you're supposed to do or how to do it. And I think I wasted years uh, early on as a sales manager where I just thought, 
well, I could just tell them that and, and they would know. Someone must have trained them somewhere along the way on what this meant. And that's not always the case. And I think that was one big thing that I had to learn over time was like validating that you actually understand what's expected and you know how to do it. Like not just like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to do this, but do you know how to do it? Like what does that sound like or look like? Because people won't say, hey, I'm not sure how to do that. People don't raise their hand like, okay, Bloss, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Like, how do I cold call or what should I be saying? They go, okay, got it. Um, so I think that was a, a, big, a, a big lesson I had to learn. I spent a lot of time now with like validating and like, okay, before I can even hold a rep accountable for failure, have I confirmed that they actually know what they're supposed to do and they knew how to do it? Because if I haven't, I got to go back to step one. Let's make sure that you know that before I can hold you accountable for performance. Now, once I get that, now it's coaching. Let me get you better at it. And then managing is like, you know what you're supposed to do, you just don't want to do it. Well, we have other problems we have to get to. Um, I think the other thing that, that really comes to mind is inspecting what you expect, right? I think, again, it's kind of the same thing, but just rolling out a new process, having a team meeting. Hey, team, we're going to start using this top track. All right, we got it. And they walked away and expect they all just started using the top track. Uh, and then finding out a month later, no, no one's been using the top track and there's no impact because they didn't, weren't comfortable with it. They didn't agree with it. They didn't feel comfortable. They didn't like it. And you're like, we rolled this out a month ago. What the hell's going on? How come, like, I told the team, I did my job. And it could be a new opportunity management process. It could be new, like, how we handle leads. And I think I, I've learned that there's a lot more that goes into um, implementing processes than just telling people. Uh, the, a big focus on adoption auditing, when I, when I call it adoption auditing. Did they yeah. auditing whether or not they've adopted what we say? What's an example in your current world where you've where you've learned that lesson and, and you've inspected what you expect, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at uh, at Perkspot, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, so, yeah, so you know, we're doing this right now. We, we just brought, brought on a new trainer. He's putting together some great training content for us. Um, and I just we just worked on putting together Monday. Um, uh, so we're calling them basically Monday tests. So every Monday you're going to put something into a test that the team knows is going to come every Monday morning. It's more or less about finding out who didn't learn something. And it's more about reinforcing the content that we talked about last week. Um, can we a new feature rollout for our platform and like, Hey, what's the new feature doing? Where do you find it? Um, and so we're doing this now. So that like we, you know, we put these kind of Google forms assessments in place that are meant to be reinforcement, but they also give us a clue in terms of like, who didn't, who doesn't, where was the gap? Maybe six people know and three people didn't get it. And so we really are putting very clearly putting these assessments in place. Uh, we did it with a recent um, sales rollout as well, kind of changed our sales process. And like, what does this stage mean? Why would you put somebody into this stage? Why does somebody come out of this stage? And actually having them go and fill out a, a test. Um, not only does it tell us again, where we need to focus our coaching or, or training. It also makes them feel like, oh, this is important. Like, oh shit, I'm gonna like, they're actually asking me to validate I learned it. They must actually care. Versus it's just another thing my boss is saying, uh, which I think is, is, you know, I was a sales rep for a long time. I, my, my boss has said a lot of stuff to me that uh, didn't help me make any money. So I, I learned to tune them out. Jason, you, when you started 15, 16 years ago uh, and you had a recruiting class come in back then and you have the classes that are coming in now, what's the biggest difference that you're seeing? You know, lack of fundamental training, like fund, fundamental sales fundamentals. I think, uh, was it Jamie was saying it before, of like, 
you know, I, I came up in a world where you know, I got trained in sales, how to overcome objections, how to control the conversation, uh, how to pitch values uh, and benefits to needs and, and um, you know, desires. And like, I was trained on all that stuff. And that's how you learn to sell. Nowadays, there's a lot of people coming from worlds of inbound leads, high intent inbound leads coming from marketing or product that are just like, hey, I was already interested and they wanted to buy this. Can you just show it to me? And then I'll decide if I want to give you my credit card, which isn't selling necessarily. I actually have a whole slide for new hires over the last three years, which is like, how do companies generate revenue? What are the roles in a company that generate revenue? Product is a revenue generation role through e-com. Now we don't even see salespeople. Cashiers. Some companies generate revenue through cashiers. Somebody has to set in a cash register. What are the skills and aptitudes for a cashier? Friendly, polite, at your workstation, you know how to use a cash register. Then you can go through a telemarketing, right? And then there's sales professionals. What are the skills that you need to have a sales professional? Because it's not the same as a cashier or a telemarketer uh, or, or a product person. And so salespeople have to overcome objections. They have to overcome unqualified no's. They have to you know, present value. Uh, gain internal consensus on decision. Like these are the skills of sales professionals that people don't necessarily come with um, based on this new SaaS world that we've made it real simple, uh, real easy. And it's great, high profitable, high volume, high velocity sales are great. I have no ill will towards them, but they don't necessarily teach people how to sell, uh, how to take somebody who's not sure if they're even in market, get them to be considering to be in market and then convince them that this is the right product or solution for them. Are they less willing to take on risk than 15, 16 yeah. years ago? Sellers themselves? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, the notion that like you shouldn't work for your pay for your salary, you work for your commission, that doesn't fly anymore. Uh, it's like, no, if you want me, you better pay me enough base that I'm going to be happy and trust that I'm going to work towards my quota. Um, you know, I grew up in, a, I, I had a straight commission job. Uh, you know, I, I tell the story, but um, you know, I got married and bought a house working in a hundred percent commission job. And, and like, if it didn't sell anything, I didn't make any money. So that's a different world than, than where, where the, the new generation is coming up. But I don't think that they're any less capable. I, I think, again, what we've put together the last couple of companies, we, we now do a month of training. I know that a lot of companies don't invest that much time, but my sales tool now are not going to talk to anybody for a month. I want to make sure they know sales fundamentals is week one. Do you know, I want to make sure to get validated. Do you know how to overcome objections? Do you know how to control the conversation? Do you know how to talk about values and benefits? Do you know how to do needs analysis? Like, I'm going to actually make sure to week one, and we just had a, a rep come out. She's like, that was like such a good refresher stuff I've heard, I'd seen before, but like to come back through and actually go through the steps of my, my sales foundation was such a great first week. And then we go into product for a week. And then we go into the market for a week. Who are we selling to? And then we do live role plays for a week. So I'm covering off a week that I know you know how to sell, a week that you know our product inside and out, a week that you understand our buyers and our market and competitors, and a week where you're actually just doing role plays. And we're doing them on the gong now, so we can listen to those role plays. And so I'm going to make sure that after four weeks, I know that I've covered off everything that you need to be able to be successful, and, um, and we get you off the right foot. And by that time, they're dying to be on the phones. So I think it's more of an investment up front that's required than it was 15, 20 years ago, when I was thrown out there, um, you know, in that, in that mid early 2000s of like, <clears throat> listen to the other sellers and then get on the phone, <clears throat> like li listen to what they say. There's a, there's a difference getting those college kids that came out during 2007, eight, nine, when, you know, when that recession hit versus, yep. you know, now it's a lot different. 
you know, if you were if you were to um, talk to some new leaders, you're you're an expert in sales leadership. I, I'm going to go out yeah. there on a limb and say that if if there was if there was a, a pro tip that you were going to lay on a new sales leader that is looking for mentorship and guidance, what would be what would be that pro tip that you, that you would get? One, two, or three tips that you would give this uh, this newly minted sales leader. Make sure you do this or don't do that. What what do you got for us? Yeah. I would start with make sure everybody on your team understands their fit in the business, their role in the organization and how they contribute uh, to the success of the business. Don't make it implicit, make it explicit. This is what your role is here to do and my role is here to do. And this is how we are measured as a team, as a management team, as a department, super clear. You don't want to have any questions around why we do what we do. Um, and then, uh, you know, validating in terms of, I think the biggest thing is opening up with radical candor from day one, set the expectation that you're going to hold the team to high standards, that you're going to focus on success and performance and winning. And then it's easier to ease into like soft skills relationship. If you set the bar, like we're going to be a top performing team, I'm going to help this team win. I'm going to focus on getting better. And I want to make sure we have a culture of winning. And then I'll start focusing on the, on like through my actions on getting to know you through my one-on-ones, through after work, through happy hours, through lunches. I will get to know you and we'll have a great relationship versus I'm going to start by getting to know you and have a great relationship first. So therefore we're buddies. And then I'm going to try to hold you accountable to a really hard goal. After you now have this sense of like, oh, come on, you know that I can't do that. Oh, come on, that's not a good goal, boss. Start with like, start at the goal, start at the priority, start at the focus of like being the best and then come back to like showing real interest in, in your teams versus worrying about being your friends first. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've, I've taken away from my career is there are definitely people who work for me that will tell you I was not easy to work for and didn't love working for me, but they will tell you 100% I helped them get better at sales and make more money and improve their career. And that's what I wake up for. And I tell people considering being managers, if you can't get excited about seeing a rep on your team increase their behaviors, like, you know, get better at, at call skills or follow-up skills, as, you have to be as excited about that as a win. Because if all you care about wins, you're never going to have a sustained success and you're never going to be happy because you won't always get wins every day. But if I like, hear a rep on the phone or I listen to a phone call and they've taken coaching and, they, and they're overcoming a rejection, they, they couldn't overcome three weeks ago, I don't care if we got a deal that day. I'm like, I'm, it's happening. The team's growing. And if all you're focused on is that number, you know, a client that used to work for you switches companies, comes in, is like, hey, I just switched companies. I want to sign a contract with you. And your rep hits 100% the quota and they did nothing. That's not sustainable. And so it's like, uh, I just love coming every day. And I tell managers, this: if you don't want to help people get better, don't get the management. It's, it's not fun. It's stressful. Then you get pissed off at them if they miss their numbers. Because you're just like, where's my numbers? Your, my numbers, your numbers. You hit my numbers. Uh, versus I'm helping my team get better. That's my, that's my big takeaway. I love it. I love it. It, it. Sales leadership is a calling and a vocation. And if you're not down for and getting excited about helping people get the fuck out because it is yeah. hard, hard, hard. If you don't get off on like that light bulb going off on people's heads. So um, that's awesome, Jason. Thank you. Pete, take us yeah. home, man. Well, number one, you can't be selfish. They'll smell that a mile away. You're selfish. They're, they're not going to follow you. You're just a guy out for a walk. Jason, thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. It was a blast. Uh, you had a good fun. I have to do a quick shout out. Emma Salazar, 
also his birthday today, worked with Kevin and I in the past, director of sales, just started with me yesterday uh, as a director of sales and it's his birthday today. So I want to give him an extra shout out there as well. So I appreciate the time today, guys. Always, happy, I always love talking to shop. Ha- happy birthday. Hey, what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you, Jason? Yeah, yeah, I think LinkedIn's my primary source. You know, right. That's where, where I go. Find me on LinkedIn. Hit me up. Uh, I try to All be right. active there. Uh, but that's really it. I, um, you know, yeah, or walking on the beach in Santa Monica. You can always bump into me down there. That's fine, too. Run into your uh, pop-up tent. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Sassholes. On behalf of Jamie, KG, and myself, Pete, we thank you for listening. And we please ask you to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Uh, All the links will be in the podcast notes. And if you really, really, really like us, you can always buy us a beer on Patreon slash Sassholes. Cue the music. Why are you you wearing, wearing the Dodger hat, by the way? My hair is a mess, and it was there, and it was clean, and they're based out of California, so I thought I'd represent (laughs) <laughs> because, because KD influenced them. There, there you go. Mr. Blades. Good morning. Look at this guy. He's a he's a Santa Monica native now, guys. He oh. used to be East Coast like Maine. And now he's yeah. like all he does all he does is post pictures of him and his wife in on the beach in, in Santa Monica these days. Makes me jealous. Oh yeah. That's exactly right. I'm, I'm born and raised in Santa Monica. Right? Oh, my God. Yeah, Pete, sure. uh, Pete Jansen's Jamie Carney, please meet uh, one of the best sales leaders I've ever had the pleasure of working with, Jason Blades. Jason, Jason, pleasure. Yeah. Even though it's it's early in the show, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might, yeah, it might all fall apart there. Um uh, very cool. Any uh, any questions, Jason, about the show notes or anything? No, I felt pretty good. I'm trying my headset for here, so you can set up pretty good. Um, can you hear me? Good. Yeah, it sounds a little, a little echoey. Bit, a little echoey, yeah. Agreed. Yeah, agreed there. So. Do you, you got the, uh, if you click on the little up arrow next to the mute button that like you can make those settings change. Can you, can you please mansplain to me how, uh, how Zoom works? <laughs> After a year and a half, we finally figured it out. <laughs> oh my right. God, that's crazy. It's looking better now. Well, we're, we are known for our sound quality on right. the show, so. Yeah. I think it's better now. Is it better now? Yeah. yeah. Roll with it, baby. Roll with it. How about the how, how about the intro, Jason? What do you think? You got it? I don't know. It's a lot of script. I'll do my best. It's pretty tough. Red light. Wow, that's pretty damn good. He's finally a guest. Gets it fucking right on the first try. You don't have to like guide him through it. All right. Low pressure. Low pressure there. Hands inside the ride, guys. Hands inside the ride. Here we go. Pete reads guest bio here. Cut and paste from above. Uh, Okay. Where are we at? (laughs) We just started.